it may sound like a cliche, but you know, music isn't what I do. It's who I am, really. There's really no separation. It's not a hobby. It's not a profession. It's just who I am, and it's been there like literally from the beginning. Hey, this is Jason Tonioli. I'm a piano player that grew up believing it wasn't possible to earn a living and support a family with music. I've proven that idea was wrong and have met hundreds of other people who have found success with their music. This podcast features stories of musicians who have found their own personal version of success and fulfillment in both music and life. This podcast is meant to inspire musicians and help them believe in their abilities and motivate them to share their talents with others. This is the Successful Musicians Podcast. Hey, thanks so much for joining us today. This is Jason Tonioli on the Successful Musicians Podcast. I have a special guest, Doug Hammer, a friend of mine that I've met at a couple of events and super talented pianist and producer. I don't know all the other titles, maybe Doug, that you have, but you can fill me in. But tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you end up in music a little bit? Well, Jason, thanks so much for having me on the podcast, first of all. I'm happy to join you today. That's uh, quite a question. I would say I was attracted to music right from the very beginning. My dad used to have this huge record collection, like a wall full of records, and I would just put my nose right up to them when I was like a toddler. And I would pull records out, and he'd make sure, you know, don't bend them. And he'd play different kinds of music. I grew up with a lot of classic country and Western and Broadway and Benny Goodman and big band and swing and all sorts of things like that. So by the time I grew up with a small spinet piano in our living room, a Wurlitzer, if you can believe it, they used to make pianos besides organs. Nice. And when I was six, I started on uh, piano lessons. And over the years, I shifted to classical for a while. Then I had a hard time with classical because it's so much of it is technique and sometimes technique a certain way. But I loved the music. And I was too much of an improviser and arranger. I wanted to mess with the notes. And that was a big no-no. <laughs> you can mess with the phrasing and the dynamics, but you can't mess with the notes. When I was doing more pop and contemporary, uh, there'd be like a hit song on the radio. And then I get the sheet music for it and then realize, wait a minute, this isn't how the song goes. This is a real simplified version of it. And then I would listen more to the song on the radio and figure out a more authentic version of it on piano rather than the uh, sheet music that I bought, that type of stuff. Yep. And then over time, I went back to classical because I just loved it, especially Claude Debussy and I love Bach and Handel, Haydn, some Chopin. I went to uh, music school out in Boston here. I grew up in the Midwest, Chicago area but went out to Boston to Berklee College of Music. And that's where, again, I'm more pop-based than anything else. But obviously, Berklee is known for their jazz. And that was a great introduction and just immersion in everything jazz, as well as other musical styles, of course. So I learned a lot about jazz harmony and voicings. And when I was going to school, I got a lot of gigs playing in hotels and restaurants and various places as a pianist, as a piano player, piano bars, that kind of thing. And I would have these big books called fake books, mm -hmm. which would have over a thousand songs. And it literally just has the melody and the chords. That's it, nothing else. And so you have to just kind of improvise on that. So all these things really just rounded out my musical education. 
And I've always loved wide variety of music, but my core has always been piano and more in the pop new age realm. And so over time, I built a recording studio, more a project-based recording studio. And what that means is rather than a commercial studio where you just rent out time to anybody, this was in my home and it was more an extension of what I could offer as a producer and engineer, sound engineer and arranger, orchestrator, all of these various hats. And so I built up producing lots of local artists and some non-local artists in New England and across the country. And then over time, frankly, I had put my own music on the back burner for quite a long time as I was building up the studio and then realized, you know, I got to start putting my own stuff out. So my first album was Solace in 2007, which ended up being probably at this point my biggest release and just built it up from there. So I feel like an explorer. There's lots of different things that I've done with my music so far, many other things that are in the works. It may sound like a cliche, but you know, music isn't what I do. It's who I am, really. There's really no separation. It's not a hobby. It's not a profession. It's just who I am. And it's been there like literally from the beginning. The only other thing, especially in college, I was always a huge fan of science. And I thought, well, you know, if this music thing doesn't pan out, I could go into science and maybe work. I was smart enough at like JPL when my dad worked on the Mars robotic missions, that type of stuff. I love space exploration and all these emerging new technologies. Some may seem scary, but are pretty amazing. But music is just, like I said, in my bones, who I am, and really couldn't see going into science. So you've done music for your career from day one then when yeah. you were out of school. So you've never really had a corporate job or done anything else other than that then. Awesome. Uh, well, when I was at Berkeley in high school, I did just a whole bunch of different jobs. I was a horticulturist for a while, and just all sorts of different things. Okay. But that was just to kind of keep the pay the rent until, uh, you know, I was doing more music based stuff. Got it. Yeah. That's amazing. And as you look back on the school, you mentioned that the fake books was kind of one of those things that really helped you. Would you say that playing out of a fake book, was that kind of that tipping point where you really opened up your eyes and you felt like you learned a lot about composing and improvising? Or is it, where do you feel like you really kind of grew and progressed as an artist and a musician the most? I would say that's part of it. Playing at piano bars, sometimes you're just kind of in a dark corner playing away for hours. It depends. I was totally fine being background music. It was a great way, like I said, to just introduce myself to all of these songs, all of these standards, all the show tunes and all the jazz tunes. And I would just learn a lot about arranging, actually. Especially, I used to play at downtown Boston at a place called Quincy Market next to Faneuil Hall. And I would play the same Christmas songs over and over and over again. And instead of being bored out of my mind, I would work on arranging these Christmas songs in different ways. Sometimes it would be reggae. Sometimes it would be like a stride Joplin kind of thing. Sometimes it would be a Latin thing. Sometimes it would be a swingy jazz thing. And little did I know that years later, a lot of those arrangements would end up on my first Christmas album called Noel. Hmm. Then my second Christmas album, same thing. 
And it was all just because I didn't want to be bored playing the same Christmas songs over and over again. Over and over. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So it's just interesting looking back how that all happened. But I've always loved arranging. And that's why I've loved working with different artists on their music, whether they wrote it or someone else wrote it. What can we do with the song? What can we do differently with it? To take it to another level, let's, I find the same thing. I know when I've gone to the recording studio and we'll, I'll go with the music that I've written and then we'll record that in. But I've found that when you really start being critical about the notes and you just take them one at a time, and even when I'm writing the music, a lot of times I'll do one note at a time sometimes, even though there's programs that you just play it in and spit out the song. I just feel like sometimes when the thought goes into the arrangement or the song, it always comes out better when you've really taken the time to give it that attention that it deserves. It's interesting how that works. What a cool thing to get paid, I guess, to go play and practice piano for a couple hours a day. Yeah, exactly. So that's awesome. (laughs) I mean, you've worked with a lot of musicians over the years. As you've worked with them, you know, everybody kind of has different goals as they come into the studio to work with you, I'm sure. You know, ideas of what is success or what's the thing that it's going to be like, okay, yes, I've accomplished this thing and been, call it successful. In your opinion, somebody here is a successful musician. What does that mean to you? Yeah, well, it doesn't mean that, especially in this country, a lot of times success is obviously based on numbers, that type of thing. It's a little different in Europe, I think, where there can be more money available for artists. In this country, it's more kind of make it or break it on your own kind of thing, which I'm not knocking at all. I'm just talking about the differences of what success is. Over the years, I've gotten amazing emails from people or they've contacted me in other ways of how my music has helped them in their lives in some way, sometimes in a very dramatic way. You just can't beat that. For me, that's one part of success is if you're able to not only move someone or touch their heart and soul through music, but even more than that, they're going through like an extremely trying time and your music is like source of comfort and solace to them. I think it just doesn't get any better than that. It's like your numbers could be whatever, but then you could get this feedback from people of how you've sometimes changed their lives in a way, and you can't put a price on that. I know it can be very harmful for any artist, musician, or painter, whatever, of comparing. It's so easy to compare. And it's even easier now to compare as everyone's statistics and plays And all of our metrics are just available for people to look up online and, oh, I have this many listeners this month and so forth. It's like always in your face, especially with social media. And it's like it can be, I think, very damaging to just get too far deep with that kind of stuff. And it's an amazing time, I think, because there's been a great equalizer. And whether you're Sting or Bruce Springsteen, or you, Jason, or me, we're all using the same tools. We're all using the same platforms. Now, sure, the big established heavy-hitting artists can have the muscle of a big record company behind them and that promotion vehicle, obviously. But regardless, we're all using the same tools. And something could break out on TikTok. Something could break out on YouTube. And it's like, you just don't know. What it seems to me is that the most important thing, and I tell everyone I work with, because sometimes while I'm working with an artist here in the studio, they'll be like, oh, but nothing will ever happen with this. Or they're already like in a self-defeat mode. 
And I'm like, no, hold on. What are you talking about? It's like, you know, and I'll tell them, you have no clue when you put this out, what could happen with it. You are literally clueless. You have no idea at all what can happen with it because you could put it out and three years goes by and not much happens with it. And then all of a sudden, someone in A&R, someone working on the next big Netflix hit series hears it and they go, this is perfect for the end credits or this is perfect for the season. And next thing you know, it skyrockets to number one. Right. Or TikTok or anything. You don't know. And so in that way, I think that's awesome. That's great that we have this platform. You don't need a major label necessarily. Now, again, that marketing muscle, of course, is, can be an attractive thing, you know? <laughs> so there's pros and cons to everything, obviously. I think one of the things I've realized <clears throat> as an entrepreneur, but also as a musician, is nobody's going to care about your thing as much as you do. And yep. as much as we want them to spend time giving attention or marketing our thing, if you just leave it up to other people, it's not likely to happen as at a level that you could do yourself if you'd really put your energy behind it. Exactly. You know, I think as artists, we have to like create art for ourselves. We have to do something that we enjoy, that we love, that like rocks our socks off. And if we love it, chances are someone else will too. I think trying to second guess what people want is, I think that's futile. I think it's like a dog chasing its tail. Who knows that there'll be like various trends that are happening in various genres and you can like hop on that trend and something could happen and maybe something doesn't happen. Maybe if you focused more on just doing your own thing, as weird as it is or different or not different, that could be a better thing as an artist. As I talk to a lot of people, it's just being true to yourself and who you are, I think is one of the recurring themes that comes up over and over again. And those people who've really found joy and success in what they're doing, when they try to be somebody they're not, you might be able to play a song that sounds like that person or whatever the thing is, but if it's not you, it's not you. It's just interesting to see how I think music at an emotional level comes out. If you're into it or not into it, you can kind of feel it when a performer's there or not there. Interesting. Great thoughts. I'm curious, again, you've worked with a lot of artists. So if you were Mm -hmm. talking to a young artist that was debating, man, do I want to get into music? Or it's just so hard to make a living as a musician. I know you hear that a lot when you're younger. And I'm sure you probably even when you were growing up and trying to tell people, hey, I'm going to go in and be a musician, you probably had more than a few snickers or smiles at (laughs) you. But what advice would you have for that younger you or the young student that's right in that kind of deciding base? What would you tell them to do if they really were serious about wanting to be a music person or not? If it's really your passion, you really have to give it a go and give it a go a thousand percent, not 99%, a thousand percent and have little or no expectation. That can be a problem is you have high expectation and you put your artistic masterpiece out there and nothing happens. What are you going to do now? Just lather, rinse, repeat. You're going to do it. Just do that over and over again. And the answer to that is yes, you're going to just keep doing it. And explore various new technologies and avenues to get your stuff out there. But it takes talent and perseverance, both, but it's worth it. And I think it rarely happens overnight. I think even so-called overnight successes are not overnight. They appear that they happen quickly, but they don't. A lot of times it's just pounding payment and really just kind of grinding away for years. But like I said, I think this is such a great time, even with how some streaming companies really have very, very low payouts for musicians. But that is being worked on through various entities to 
make that a better situation for us. And over time, I think laws will change and that will improve. But never has there been a time where literally a kid could buy a laptop and in their bedroom, like make a hit song. Right. And it's really doesn't matter if it's a piano or a laptop or a bunch of plugins or an accordion or kazoo, or you go into a canyon and you're like chanting in a cave and you're recording it on your phone or something. And then you're using part of that as a sample and doing this and doing that. None of that stuff really matters. It's the intent behind what you're doing and what you're communicating as an artist and that expression. And that transcends any technological barriers. We've seen this time and time again of things that were initially demos recorded on cassette tapes, showing my age a little bit. They were recorded on cassette tapes. And then, you know, they go to the studio and they try to recapture the demo and then they can't. And then they're like, you know what, let's just like release some of the stuff, the original demos that we recorded on the cassette tapes. Mm -hmm. And they try to clean that up and get that out because the emotion and the feel was there. So I would say, you know, again, to that young artist, just don't give up. We live in amazing times, actually. There were all these barriers before. You needed a major label record deal. You needed someone to go to all these radio stations and say, play this, you know, play this, play that. And now that's all removed. And oftentimes you can be more effective than the label if you have a really specific strategy or things you're trying to do with with your music. And a lot of times labels don't even want to talk to you unless you've achieved success with your numbers as you start. And if you've already achieved that success, it's kind of like, why do do you need the label? Exactly. What are are they going to do for you now? Who right. needs who <laughs> or whom? Unless you're wanting to really go on tour or another thing, every label is different, but I'm not sure sometimes that it's an advantage. I think there's definitely going to be some hybrid or some hybrid models that are going to evolve over the coming years that will make sense, whether it's yeah. helping to pay for some of the production costs or things like that. I mean, there's a lot that goes into that you could build into a contract. But I think the old yeah. school, the label owns everything is nearly <laughs> dead. Thank goodness. Yeah. I know. 360 deals. Yeah. (laughs) Those were a good deal for us, right? (laughs) Right. Awesome. Well, I'm just curious, somebody were to come into your studio and come work with you. I'm just curious about what the process would kind of be. What have you found works really well? Let's talk about like the piano person coming in to do a project with you. What's kind of that process that they would need to know in order to be more efficient and and make it really go well when they go into a studio for the first Um, time? Obviously, one needs to be prepared, but I believe not over-prepared. You have to allow some wiggle room and allow some room for spontaneity, for one thing. Now, obviously, you know, when I'm just working on my music, I don't have to pay myself for the studio time. (laughs) So I do understand the whole time thing, but I've just developed uh, a way of, how do I say, and this is like very real and authentic here. Just being very chill and relaxed with people, I want them to be as comfortable as possible because I want to get the best takes out of them. And one needs to be as relaxed and comfortable in order to do that. So on one hand, I'm very relaxed. And on the other hand, I'm working very efficiently with all of the equipment behind the scenes and making notes as they're doing takes, as they're recording things. I think one has to be careful of what's called analysis paralysis. What can happen is someone does a take and then I'll say, that was a great take, except for this, this, that, and this. And then they go to do the second take. And this could be a singer, a pianist, anyone. 
And now they're focused on technically fixing this, this, that, and this. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times, most of the time, actually, I'm more like, awesome. That was a great first take. Let's do like one or two more. Let's not listen yet. Let's just get a few more down and then go from there. Another thing is just kind of after a take, completely breaking the flow and talking about something else that has nothing to do with music for a few minutes, not for an hour, (laughs) not for 10 minutes, just something that's completely unrelated. And then that can enable them to kind of hit the next take very fresh because they're not all of a sudden hung up with all of this stuff in their mind. And it's just, I found this with my own stuff too. In having done all this recording of, you know, on my own, I notice it as well. And so I notice that if it's not happening after a while, I'm getting diminishing returns. I'll stop. I'll go for a walk. We have a pond in our backyard. I'll go out and feed the ducklings like what I'm doing right now. Well, not the second, but they're back there. They're waiting for their corn and do something completely different and then come back to it fresh. And I call that peripheral thinking where it's like peripheral vision out of the sides that you just see it like a little bit. And just this is more to access any kind of creativity, really, not just about recording. It could be about composing. It could be about arranging. A lot of times I find I come up with great ideas when I'm not in the studio, not at the piano. I could be washing the dishes or in the shower, this or that, or just going for a walk in the woods. Some will come up and, I'll, oh, let me record that into my phone or something like that. It's like a relaxed mind is a creative mind, basically, kind of getting into a more relaxed Zen state. So peripheral thinking and trying to get into that, what I call ITZ, in the zone. And I spent a lot of time in the studio with a lot of people. And based on my experience of that, as well as just my own stuff, I've found this to really bear true, that you have to just really just be totally relaxed. You know, it's funny. I remember working with a jazz sax player overdubbing on a project and he would be what we call noodling. You know, I just play the track and he'd get used to the sound and kind of like a sound check and I would be recording that. And then he'd be like, okay, I'm ready to record. And then we would do takes two and three and four sometimes. But usually that first noodling take was the take. Yep where it's like he didn't know that I was recording. And it's gotten to the point where my software program is always recording, even if I don't hit record. Like I could just play and I have a record enabled track. And then at the end, there's a thing that's, I can go and do a command and all of a sudden, boop, it just pops up. It was recording the whole time. And so in a nutshell, this is just a long-winded way of saying, just being relaxed is really, really important. And making sure you're not too hungry either. Those are good words of advice. I wish I would have had those when I was going into the studio for my first couple of times because I think you nailed it on the head. So great words of advice. Is there anything in the last little recent period, like tips that you'd have for musicians that have had some, oh man, that was a great marketing idea or things that I learned in the last little while that might help another musician out? Yeah. A lot of times it helps working with what I find with younger clients because I'm working with the singer-songwriter obviously a different generation. And back in the day, as musicians and composers, we're always used to kind of working with various mediums and technologies and so forth. And back in the day, it was about selling sheet music and there would be a music store with sheet music and they would have a piano on the sidewalk with someone playing the tune. And they'd have a stack of the sheet music on the piano or on a table. 
And people would hear the tune and they'd be like, you know, this is back in the day when like a lot of people had pianos in their homes. I want to learn that tune. Here you go. And so what I'm learning about now is that a lot of people are doing YouTube Live. So I'm not even talking about Facebook Live or Instagram. I'm talking about YouTube Live and I'm talking about Twitch Live. Well, Twitch is live. Where there are musicians that are just, whether it's a couple times a week, two or three times a week, they're just like sometimes for hours live on Twitch, which tend to think more as a gaming medium platform. And musicians really exposing what they're doing on Twitch more than anything else in YouTube Live. So it's always a moving target for one thing. So yeah, that's one thing. I'm kind of exploring some of those options right now. Awesome. Well, Doug, thank you so much for your time today. If somebody wanted to go find out more about you or check out your music, where should they go to find that? Doughammer.net. Awesome. And everything is there. Yeah. I can vouch for the music that some of the songs you've got on there. I, I was almost late for our, our podcast call because I was in the middle of listening and just enjoying it. So, <laughs> Well, <laughs> thanks so much, Jason. Thanks so much. And we will catch you on the next one. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, it's Jason here. And I hope you've gotten a lot of value out of this episode. Be sure to check out our show notes to learn more about our guest today. And if you'd like to support our podcast, there's a few things that you can do to help us grow. First, if you hit subscribe, it will help ensure that you don't miss a future episode. Second, if you'll share it with your friends on social media or send it via email or message, it helps us spread the word as well. And third, if you'll leave an honest review, it really helps with the algorithms so that other people can find our podcast. Finding success and fulfillment in the music industry is possible. And I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.